0: What? I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Episode 12, Bede. The Venerable Bede is sometimes known as the father of English history. This is a reference that places him in a lineage ultimately from Herodotus of Halicarnassus, the father of history generally and it's a title he's earned chiefly through his work, the Historia Ecclesiastica Gentis Anglorum, or in English, The Ecclesiastical History of the English People. Without this book, we would know hardly anything about the period of Anglo-Saxon history from before the 8th century. It's hard to overstate the importance of the ecclesiastical history. 8th century English missionaries to the continent sought out copies of it, as well as Bede's other works. King Offer of Mercia is known to have had a copy. It was one of the books that King Alfred had translated into English, one of the books that he regarded as important for all men to know. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle also made very heavy use of it for its earlier parts. Throughout the Middle Ages, it was one of the primary sources for all English historians, such as William of Malmesbury and Geoffrey of Monmouth. Even during the Reformation, it was lauded by both Protestants and Catholics as a means to convert Queen Elizabeth to their respective sides. In this book, there is something profound that speaks to the English and provides an entryway into something essential about themselves, into their own history, their stories, their religiosity, and it can all be traced back to this one monk from Northumbria called Bede. Despite how important he is, we know hardly anything about Bede's life, except for what he tells us at the end of the history. Including a mini-biography of the author was actually a fairly usual practice in medieval history, and Bede was clearly copying the biography given by Gregory of Tours at the end of his history of the Franks. What Bede tells us is that he was 59 years old when he finished writing the history in the year 731, Thus, he must have been born either in 672 or 673. He also tells us that his family lived on land owned by the monastery of Wearmouth, and that he was given to that monastery in the year 680, when he was only seven years old. In 681, Jarrow was founded, and Bede was sent there along with Chailfrith and 22 monks. Soon after, according to the anonymous life of Chailfrith, Jarrow was struck by a plague, and all 22 monks died, leaving only Chailfrith and a small boy, who together struggled to perform the entire liturgical round, despite being critically understaffed. Bede doesn't mention the story, but it has been inferred that the boy was Bede, and he certainly had an extremely close relationship with Chailfrith until the latter's death. Bede was ordained a deacon at the age of 19, this was unusual, since canonically a deacon had to be at least 25. Exceptions could be made for men of great ability, and since it was Chailfrith who presented him as a candidate to the Bishop of Hexham, this may indicate the closeness that existed between Bede and his teacher, as well as the boy's great ability. In 703, he became a priest. After this, his life is almost entirely devoid of incident. The only events we know of are, are an undated visit to Lindisfarne, a trip to York in the year 733, and the departure of Caelfrith to die in Rome in 716. He never made it to Rome, but rather died en route. Bede, we know, died in 735, four years after finishing the history. Even on his deathbed, he didn't stop working. We're told that he was working on a translation of the Gospel of John into English, which he unfortunately didn't finish, and which does not survive in any form. His cult emerged by the 11th century, and his bones today are housed in Durham Cathedral in the north of England. Although he lived an extremely quiet life, his mind was extremely active, and he was without question a genius. In this episode, I'm going to talk not just about the history, but also about some of his other major works. It's not a comprehensive list. He wrote too much for that to really be possible but I will touch on his most important works. The place to begin, of course, is with the ecclesiastical history itself. The book is, as its title says, a history, unlike, say, Gildas, which is mainly a moral exhortation with some historical references. History as a genre is ancient, going back, as I said, to Herodotus of Halicarnassus. But by the 8th century, there weren't that many histories being written anymore. Bede's two main models were a partial Latin translation of Eusebius' Ecclesiastical History, written during the time of the Emperor Constantine, and Gregory of Tours' History of the Franks, which was written in the 6th century. Bede was also clearly interested in hagiography, that is, lives of saints, since there are quite a few saintly figures who appear in the history and whose lives are narrated in some detail, However, the history differs in scope from a saint's life. Bede's aim was to show God's plan for the English, their conquest of Britain and their conversion to Christianity. He also hoped, as he says in the preface, that history would give moral instruction to the reader. To write his history, Bede drew on several sources. For the first part of the work, dealing with the Roman conquest and the coming of the Saxons, he drew extensively on Gildas and augmented this with the works of people like Orosius and Pliny, among others. For the history of England after the coming of St Augustine, he drew on a much wider array of sources, such as letters sent from popes to English bishops and rulers, the lives of saints such as Wilfred, and on letters he received himself from leading English churchmen relating the history of their various churches, which inevitably also overlapped with the history of their various kingdoms. Unlike Gregory of Tours, whose history begins with the creation of the world and then goes up to his own day in the 6th century. Bede begins his history with a description of Britain and then launches straight into the arrival of the Romans under Julius Caesar. From here he narrates the history of the island up until his own day in the early 8th century. One of the historically most important elements of the history is in Bede's apparent conception of the English as being a single people. He calls them the Gentis Anglorum, Gentis being the genitive form of Gens, the Latin term for a family, race or clan. In the Roman conception, members of a Gens would share a common ancestor and have distinctive customs. This doesn't necessarily mean that Bede was arguing for a single English nation, only that he saw all the Germanic peoples who settled in England as related to each other in a way that they were not to the island's other inhabitants who were members of their own gentes, i.e. had their own common ancestors, practices, and inherited traditions. We can tell that Bede didn't see the English as a single, unified people, from the fact that he wrote from a distinctly Northumbrian viewpoint. His view focused on the Northumbrian experience, but it was not a view that exalted Northumbria over other kingdoms. This is probably due in part to the early success of Irish missionaries over Roman ones in Northumbria, For Bede, the Irish espoused schismatic errors, so while he emphasised the holiness of men like Aidan and Oswald, he could not say that Northumbria was a model of piety and orthodoxy. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. Ed Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. But while Bede does clearly write with the Northumbrian focus, he drew on many sources from across England to build a history of all of England. This was done mostly, as already mentioned, through letter exchanges with high-ranking churchmen and from Bede's own reading in Jarrow's enormous library. While extremely effective, this approach does also result in some omissions. For example, Bede gives us very little information about Mercia. This contributes to the impression of Mercia as being the great villain of Bede's history, when in fact it's really more just a reflection of his lack of sources for Mercian history. Thus, given Bede's distinctively Northumbrian view, it would be incorrect to say that he promoted English unification. He presents the English being divided into various independent kingdoms as a normal, while the only form of unity he promotes is union under the leadership of the Roman Church. Attempts to see in Bede a kind of manifesto for the creation of England are ultimately teleological, and really don't match with how he presents English history. Any unification for Bede is unification under the Roman Church, and this focus on Catholicity, Catholic meaning universal, derives from the book's aim of being an ecclesiastical history, comparable to that of Eusebius. This spiritual core is reflected particularly in the fifth book of the history. In this book, which covers Bede's own day, his focus shifts from political and conversion history to recounting various stories of miracles that have occurred in his own day, The goal, he tells us, is to demonstrate that the miracles which he has recounted throughout the history of the English Church still occur to testify to the truth of the Christian faith. The history, as mentioned, is not Bede's only work, though. Throughout the Middle Ages and the early modern period, his fame as a historian was matched by his fame as a theologian and biblical commentator. He wrote various commentaries on many books of the Old and New Testaments, drawing as he did so on many church fathers and authorities. It's important to say something here about how learning was understood in the ancient and medieval worlds. The idea that novelty is desirable was alien to these times. Novelty led to error, while wisdom employed and built upon the examples established by recognised authorities. This informed all classical and medieval education, where the emphasis was placed on rote learning, examples of eloquence and virtue the idea being that by learning these examples, one would then employ them in one's own life. The idea of reading for pleasure was thus unthought of, and instead the meaning and import of a text was meant to be taken into one's heart, and effect a change on the reader's character. To see how much we've drifted from this ideal, you only have to see how many books and articles published today prioritise breaking down old modes of thinking and established assumptions, For most of human history, it has been accepted that the tried and tested is preferable to the new and rebellious. Thus, when Bede wrote his commentaries, he did so by drawing mostly on established authorities, such as St. Jerome and St. Augustine, and expanding upon their ideas. I could really get into the theological content of these, but I don't want to bore you any more than I already do. The key to take away is that Bede's theological writings, though not as famous today as his history, were highly regarded in his day for their clarity and their subtlety of thought. Closely related to these are his homilies on the Gospels. These are different from commentaries in that they are meant to be read in the context of the Mass, while a textual commentary was meant to be read in tandem with the Bible by a student or individual engaged in sacred reading, Lectio Divina, which was a common form of contemplative devotion practiced in religious communities and by the devout laity. Homilies, in contrast, were much more rhetorical, drawing on the techniques of rhetoric, such as the use of metre, rhyme and repetition for maximum effect when speaking out loud. Bede's homilies are not just important for their insight into Anglo-Saxon preaching, they also confirm something which we can discern in the history and the commentaries, Bede's profound debt to the influence of St. Gregory the Great. You may remember Gregory as the Pope who sent the first missionaries to Kent in 597, He was also one of the most important theologians and preachers in the history of the Latin Church. His enormous commentary on the book of Job, the Moralia in Job, profoundly shaped all subsequent Latin theology, while his book on pastoral care shaped church governance, and will reappear later in this podcast when we get to the reign of King Alfred. He also composed a series of homilies for preaching, and it was these homilies which served as the basis for Bede's own series, by basis, I mean that Bede clearly intended for his homilies to complement Gregory's. We can see this in the way that Bede deliberately writes for days that Gregory did not cover, and a clear theological influence of Gregory's work on Bede's own views. Gregory played a major role in transmitting the work of Augustine to the West. In doing so, he moderated some of Augustine's more controversial opinions, particularly the focus in his later work on predestination. Where Augustine's later views drifted towards the idea that God predestines damnation to some just as he does for salvation, Gregory reworked Augustine's formulation of original sin by adding to it a focus on divine love. Gregory held with Augustine that due to the sin of Adam, humanity requires God's grace to be saved, but he also held that God extended that grace to all people in the form of Jesus Christ and that the impetus is now on us to respond to that grace with virtue and good works, since God will not undermine our free will by forcing us to respond. Bede was particularly important in spreading these ideas in England, and it was from him that Gregorianism became the dominant stance of Anglo-Saxon theology up to the Norman Conquest. Bede also wrote a book called The Reckoning of Time, which focused on the principles of calendars, and particularly the calculation of Easter. We've already encountered this book in the episode on Anglo-Saxon paganism, where we mentioned his discussion of the traditional Anglo-Saxon calendar, and what it told us about the Anglo-Saxon's pre-Christian beliefs. The book also discusses the Jewish, Egyptian, Greek, and Roman calendars, again showing Bede's extensive reading of ancient and late antique sources. Besides this, He also gives us a detailed look at the medieval Christian cosmos, his scientific knowledge and his understanding of salvation history. For example, he divides all of history into six ages, a division based on the works of St. Augustine, with each age corresponding to a distinct period of biblical history, and culminating in his discussion of the second coming and the end of days. Among all these books, we see Bede's extraordinary learning. This has not even been an exhaustive list of his work, it only focuses on his major works. Besides the text mentioned here, he also was a poet, a teacher of grammar and rhetoric, and a hagiographer. It isn't an understatement to say that Bede was the most influential Anglo-Saxon scholar of them all. There wasn't a single Anglo-Saxon scholar after him who didn't draw on his works in some way. He was the father of English scholarship. And without him, we wouldn't know anywhere near as much as we do about Anglo-Saxon history. Although, of course, we have to treat him with caution, just as we do with any historical source. However, we can all be thankful that Bede existed and wrote so much. And, crucially, also, that so much of what he wrote has survived and come down to us in so many copies. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. As always, I've been your host, Tom Kearns. If you enjoyed this podcast, I would like to request that you leave a like or a positive review or whatever it is on whatever platform you use, since it really helps us to get exposure and attract more listeners. We also now have a Facebook page, so if you search for us on Facebook and if you want to get updates on new episodes, you can always leave a like there, which would also be extremely appreciated. But... That's all for this week. So, once again, thank you for listening, and I've been your host, Tom Kearns. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago.